Uh, if you have a Bible, open up with me, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll get into uh, God's Word and uh, continue a story that we uh, just got introduced to last week. But before we get into that, uh, I want to kind of talk about something that I think uh, we'll, all, uh, we'll all find some, some familiarity with. Uh, and you may not anticipate this actually, you know, factoring into God's Word or factoring into this story, but actually has a whole lot more in common to it uh, with it than uh, you maybe uh, would have thought. Uh, so there are a lot of unique things about our generation, uh, for better or for worse. And, uh, you know, generations, sometimes the Bible re- regards generation to hundreds of years or 100 years or 40 years. Uh, so just looking back, back at the last 100 years or so, uh, there's a lot of things that make our time unique from history before, uh, for better or for worse. Many of you uh, uh, have seen things change quite a bit in your lifetime and, and uh, things are changing uh, even as we speak. But one thing in particular that anyone growing up in America over the past hundred years, that if you were to take Americans and, and you were to comp- compare us and give us uh, a connection to people that have lived not only in this country, but all around the world throughout history, one thing that is a unique about America and that has a particular um, uh, impact on our culture and our society that is really unique to our time and our day and age and that has spread around the world is the uh, power and the influence of the entertainment industry. I know that's a broad uh, uh, you know, theme or a broad category, but regarding whether it's you know, movies, music, uh, and everything in between. Uh, now, obviously, there have, uh, there's been entertainment throughout history since the dawn of civilization. There's been uh, people who were entertainers uh, through different uh, forms and, and functions. But as far as a concentrated, uh, massive industry um, that, uh, has, that, that had really dominated it, its time and, and influenced so much, and so far and wide, uh, that uh, the one that has existed in America since around 1890 uh, is really unmatched throughout history. Nothing compares to it in terms of uh, historical uh, context. Now, a lot of this has to do with the rise of motion pictures uh, and, and all that coming together around a single area, and, and being Hollywood, uh, that kickstarted the machine that has exponentially grown over the last 100 years. And the thing about the entertainment industry that makes it so powerful and so unique is that it hasn't remained warded off to the, from the rest of culture, uh, but it's actually blended into the rest of culture and it's influenced the rest of culture uh, in be, ways that are beyond measuring. Uh, the entertainment industry has, uh, has affected so many other avenues, whether it's sports or politics, even the church and religion, that, that everything has been affected by and changed by the entertainment industry industry, everything takes cues from the entertainment industry, which is wild when you think about it, that the most dispensable, even disposable part of our society, not that we you know, don't need entertainment, but right, we could live without it, but the most dispensable part, the most disposable part of our society has the most influence and has the most power. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it, um, but, but that's a story and a sermon in and of itself. But I bring all this up because naturally when we think about the entertainment industry, we obviously think about the things that we like, whether it's movies, music, shows, uh, albums, plays, all that stuff. There's so many things that fall into this category, but uh, we think about the things that we like, but 
you, you can't talk about the entertainment industry without talking about the things that uh, w- the things that we don't like, or the things that are not so likable, the things that are quite unfortunate. Uh, because there is a dark side uh, to the entertainment industry. Not only the negative implications and influences it has, in, as far as the people that consume it. Uh, of course, that's a concern. Uh, but I'm not talking about as what it does to us or what it does to people that consume it and watch it and listen to it. But I, I'm more referring to what it does to those who are a part of it and what it has done to those who are a part of it. Uh, you know, in our country, you know, we talk about celebrities and icons and stars as much as we talk about, uh, you know, politicians and athletes and maybe even more so, right? And, and in some cases, uh, celebrities and icons and stars have replaced uh, politicians and, and, and uh, people that are actually doing heroic things. In, in some cases, we look to these more than we look to other people as trendsetters and, and influencers. Uh, and I think all of us know more than one story of a celebrity or an icon uh, whose uh, rise to fame and rise to stardom was also followed by something unfortunate and, and maybe their story was even tragic. Now, that isn't, and it shouldn't surprise us because we know that fortune and fame is not always, uh, is not everything. It's not the end all be all. Uh, we know that it, it can actually have the opposite effect on people. The, the glitz and the glamour uh, is, is just the presentation that behind all that can be some pretty dark stuff and some, some damaging stuff. And, and those that have a path into it and are living in it, uh, they would never think, nobody goes into this industry that offers so much. Nobody goes into it thinking that it's gonna ruin their life. They think it's gonna be the best thing ever because of what so many seem to have that are in it. Um, we would imagine, and from our perspective, that we think that every actor and every artist and everything in between seems destined to a life of happiness and fulfillment. I mean, how could they not find happiness and be fulfilled? And why would anything take that away? Uh, However, that is definitely not the case. And you know that, don't you? Um, In all of our lifetimes, we have observed case after case and story after story of somebody whose stardom did not poise them for the best life. It didn't protect them from anything less than best, but rather the opposite. It actually positioned them and it actually produced for them a life full of problems. And maybe it didn't have to work out that way. Uh, Maybe the success didn't cause it, but they just weren't able to handle it. Uh, The pressure was too great. The power was too much for them to bear. And maybe you've got a favorite actor, a favorite icon, a favorite artist, singer, and one of the the prominent positions in the industry. Uh, And maybe you know that their story uh, where they went from being a rising star, they were even a superstar, but suddenly they became a falling star. And and, and as quick as they rose to stardom, they fell. And their story was, was quite heartbreaking when, you, when it finally came out. And sometimes it doesn't come out for years and years and years. Um, but this phenomenon is not rare, um, it, it, but it actually is fairly commonplace in Hollywood. It, uh, there are so many tragic stories. Uh, think about uh, particularly how many tragic stories there are uh, that feature or that revolve around children or young adult actors and artists. That yes, there are plenty of people who are adults that get into it and their lives kind of unravel because of things that they just didn't anticipate or didn't, you know, didn't protect themselves from. But really, if you zoom in on the entertainment industry, the most unfortunate stories and the most heartbreaking stories are revolving around the children or the young adult actors or artists that get into it when, of course, they're young. Uh, But as they get older, as they become uh, teenagers and young adults, their lives are topsy-turvy and 
some of them fall completely out of the industry before they're even adults. And, and I'm sure you've got somebody on your mind as we discuss this, someone that when you were younger, they were your age and you, know, you followed them and then all of a sudden they fell out. But, and then later on, it turned out that they were, uh, that their lives just really faced, they faced some things that you just couldn't imagine them getting into because why would they throw all that they had away uh, like they did, um, you know, they're one of the earliest examples, and this isn't just a recent phenomenon. Uh, one of the most, one of the earliest examples of this in Hollywood is an actor named Bobby Driscoll. Uh, he was a beloved actor in the 40s and 50s. Many of the early Walt Disney uh, uh, live-action films, uh, he was the star. He was a childhood star, or, or a star as a child as a teenager. Uh, he was the voice actor. If you've watched Peter Pan, that, that's his voice. Um, but Driscoll's story is so sad. He his career unraveled in the, in his 20s, and he died not long after his 31st birthday, living lives on the streets of New York. Uh, again, nobody would ever imagine that that boy who had so much potential and was a star at age you know, 12, 15, how in the world could all of it unravel and how could his life be cut so short? Uh, but you're familiar with many other celebrities from industry icons, whether it's Michael Jackson or Macaulay Culkin, people that were so famous in their youth and then they faced some bumps in the road and some of them came back from it, but others, they didn't. And uh, there's many stories from every decade uh, of, of a child or a young adult um, celebrity that, uh, that, that lost control and uh, maybe they never had control and maybe that was the real issue. Uh, while there are some that are reformed and find redemption, there's a rocky road ahead for all those who enter that industry at such a young and impressionable and vulnerable age. Now, a lot of psychological studies have been done to study this trend. Why is it that so many children and young adult actors and artists and all the, and the likes, why is it that so many of them, most of them face these kind of breakdowns uh, around the same point in their life? And most of the research has shown a, a similar report or given a similar report that children removed from their normal, now, of course, normal family environment is, is a pretty wild word, to, a phrase to put because what's normal, right? But their normal, that's the important thing to note, that every one of us brought up in our homes from the outside, it may look completely dysfunctional and it may be, it may seem completely out of control and it may be, but if that is our normal that we're being raised in and reared in, uh, that, that being removed from that um, can be damaging in ways that, again, that cannot be measured and cannot be understood completely until so many years later. But psychological studies have proven or have suggested that children removed from their normal family environments thrust into a world of possibilities and pressures that they were never wired to deal with or process. That is the reason why often in the teenage years and young adult years that these childhood and young adult celebrities lose everything and their lives go down on such an unfortunate path. All the while, they lack the guidance. They are suddenly met with tremendous age agency and freedom and choice they aren't ready for. And let's be honest, most adults can't handle that kind of possibility and potential and, and pressure, much less children or teenagers. And psychological studies have, have, have concluded that rather than being raised and nurtured by parents, their steps are determined by a production team and that is the downfall. And isn't that a, a sermon in and of itself that rather than being raised by, uh, by parents, children and young adults are raised by a production team. And this is bigger in, beyond the entertainment industry it happens in children um, and involved in certain things all around the world in every aspect of, of life. But uh, there's no further explanation really needed, right? Uh, because you can't replace parents with 
uh, a production team. Now, this isn't just exclusive to the entertainment industry, but in any case, where children lack those primary things, love, care, and, 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 and uh, being nurtured uh, from their parents or their loving guardians, uh, that there is this disconnect. There is this disconnect between vulnerable souls and the source they need so that they can grow up into their full and ideal potential. Again, this happens on every level of society uh, and the end result is always so unfortunate and it's so clearly avoidable based on the examples and the warnings we have. Uh, Now, maybe this will surprise you, but did you know, did you know that there is an example of this sort of scenario in the Bible and the example we're going to talk about today may surprise you, but I think, I think it may just open our eyes to what all of our hearts need the most. Beyond even what we need from our earthly parents and guardians, what we need from our heavenly father that cannot be matched or cannot be replaced by anything of this world. And would you believe that the example in the Bible from the history of our faith was allowed to transpire, that God allowed this to happen, that God allowed his chosen servant at that time to go in down this road so that you and I, so that you and I might be able to learn how vital this important reality is, that we might not open ourselves up to the wrong source of nurture and the wrong source of guidance, so that we might not allow love and nurture to be replaced with lesser, cheaper counterfeits. Now, the Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches that the backstory of Jesus' ministry and the work of the church is the Old Testament, which is the story of God rebuilding the world after the fall, how God specifically chose the nation of Israel. And there are so many episodes of Israel's history where God allows them to face things and causes things to happen in their, their you know, area and in their lives uh, so that you and I, all these years later, might be able to learn from their experiences and be better you know, disciples and better believers and more devoted to him as a result of it. First Corinthians chapter 10 says this, these things happened to them, that is Israel, as an example, but that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And, and that word end can also mean on whom the, the so much at one time is coming on us and pulling us in so many different directions and pulling our heartstrings in so many different ways. Our time together uh, around this subject and the story that inspires it might prove to be one of the most important, one of the most important messages from the Bible for you at your point in life, at any point in life, because it's going to punctuate the gospel and the importance of the relationship that you can have, that we can have with God through Jesus. Now, we're jumping into the story uh, about a king who has completely lost his way, uh, a king who was uh, consumed by his own ego, his own pride, insecurities, and fear. And he is so paranoid and he is so uh, full of lust for more power that he has separated himself from everybody else. He is not allowing anybody in, anyone that could possibly pull him back to God. He's not allowing it. And God actually raises a a prophet in his day to go and look for that that king's replacement. So God sends the prophet to a little town uh, south of the capital and he anoints the future king. And all this is happening uh, and unbeknownst to the current king, God is preparing another one to take his place. Now, you're probably aware and familiar with the story. The mad king, the, the king that has lost his way is Saul. And the next king is a young boy named David. 
We know the story of David, how he was privately and secretly anointed as the future king, being left with his family. He was a shepherd boy on the hills of Judea. Uh, but maybe you don't know how David actually made it, made it into the spotlight and became the lovable prince of Israel. And today we're going to learn his story and learn how his story is so relatable to all of us. And the lesson he learned across his early years is so important for all of us. So if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel 16. I want you to look with me at verse 14 through 23. The previous section we looked at last week is where David is anointed off the record. Samuel goes to Bethlehem, finds this young shepherd boy, uh, anoints him as the future king, but tells Jesse, hey, don't talk about this. Don't spread the word about this. David, keep quiet about it. This is gonna happen sometime in the future. Uh, I don't know what God's plans are, but we'll let him work it all out. Well, uh, verse 14 is how he began to work it all out. The story goes, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul after Saul had rejected the Lord's guidance. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. He was troubled. He was haunted by the fact that he had turned away from God. But again, God's working in all this. Look at verse 15. Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player of the harp. And it shall be that he will play it and with his hand, when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, you shall be well. So they said, hey, uh, the, the instrument, the, you know, the, the, the industry or the, you know, the form of entertainment that is the hottest right now, that is the most soothing to the soul and the most pacifying to the mind is the harp, you know, music played it by the harp and songs sung with the harp. So let's find somebody that can come into your presence, Saul, and can get you to a peaceful place and can help your spirit get some rest from all this that's going on that we aren't really sure what it is but clearly uh, from his ego to his pride to his paranoia to his fear all that stuff Saul we've got to get you some help so we're finding somebody that can uh, bring this calming presence to you so Saul said verse 17 provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, maybe they oversold him at this point, a man of war, uh, prudent in speech, handsome in person, and the Lord is with him. Now, again, the mighty man of valor, the, the man of war, that is just them trying to butter up Saul because when they bring this kid into the presence of Saul, he's going to think, who is this guy? Uh, but we know who this David is. He's not a man. He's not a, a, a star. He's just a shepherd boy. Uh, uh, but the word on the hills is that he can play a mean harp. And when he begins to play to his sheep and he begins to sing to his God, everybody in the town stops what they're doing and listens to David. Have you heard Psalms 23? I mean, that is the hit number on the local radio station. David was a beloved uh child star in his own local area but that was you know again before radio before the media that we have uh he was relatively unknown but somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody heard him play and heard him sing and that got to Saul's attention Verse 18, Saul said to the messengers to David, to Jesse, and said, send me your son. And when the king says, send me your son, you don't have an option to say no. You don't have an option to say, well, hey, how long is he going to be there? And what's the rules or what's the, you know, are, are you, you know, going to take him, you know, completely from me? When the king of this time says, hey, send me someone, you send him 
someone, lest he come and take him. So Saul says, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Saul found out that David wasn't a warrior. He wasn't a man. He's a boy. He's a shepherd. But at this point, Saul is desperate for something to help his agonized soul. So they bring in the young boy. Verse 20, and Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them by his son, Saul, David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him. He loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. So uh, he got so close to Saul. Not only was he playing the harp to soothe his soul, but he uh, became his right-hand man. He became uh, kind of a helper to the king. And, And then Saul sent to Jesse saying, please let David stand before me for he has found favor in my sight. And Saul did not want to let go of this boy. Now, it seems like he has good intentions, but we'll find out later that they weren't so good. And so it was, whether, whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it in his, with his hand and Saul would be refreshed and well and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So there you have it. That is how the young shepherd boy, anointed off the record, becomes the right hand uh, boy, or, you know, man in the kingdom, uh, becomes Saul's personal armor bearer. More importantly, he becomes Saul's personal harp player, personal musician. Now, uh, the irony cannot be overlooked how Saul ended up bringing into the palace his future replacement, but he didn't know that yet. But David did, and he kept that in his own heart. Saul introduced David to the nation. The nation fell in love with David and began having a greater affinity and praise for David than they actually liked and had for Saul. Uh, And everywhere that Saul went, David was there playing the harp, singing his songs. And it didn't just soothe Saul's soul, it soothed and brought peace and joy and all to the whole nation. And And this can't be overstated. David was the first of his kind for Israel, really for the ancient world. He was a celebrity, he was a rock star. He was only a young boy, probably not even but 10 or 11, 12 years old. And the nation, the nation of Israel, they had never had an icon like David before. Before it was just war heroes and prophets and politicians, but David, just a kid, a charming, charismatic boy, but still just a kid. But through all that, he won the hearts and minds of the entire nation. He also won the heart of the king's daughter, but she was just a young girl at this time. She didn't share that with David and David didn't realize uh, that, that she was smitten for, by him until much later. But you could just see that this was God's plan, wasn't it? That this was part of Samuel's plan. David going into the palace, becoming the right-hand man of Saul, becoming his heart player, becoming the future prince of Israel. Could you ever script it any better? Now, they never have the conversation, but maybe David thought this was part of God's plan or Samuel's plan anointed, and now suddenly it all fell into his lap. David was being relocated and taken up permanent residence in the palace, but the story says that David would sneak away from time to time to check on his sheep, and more importantly, to visit with his dad because he sorely missed him, maybe more than he realized. Now, long after, not long after this, a war breaks out and the Philistines begin invading the land and David's home region of Judea is under fire and the people of Judah are recruited to fight the battle. It's in their backyard. Uh, Saul takes his army south to face the enemy army led by a giant named Goliath. And he begins to mock the Israelites as puny and weak and as having faith in the wrong God. Uh, The story goes that David, uh, not being needed in Saul's service, returned home to Bethlehem, probably because this was a very dangerous battle and he needed to go somewhere that he could be safe. Uh, David uh, was under his father's care at this time. and, and, And Jesse actually asked David, could you go and take my sons, your older brothers, some food and sustenance, a care package because I'm worried about them. So 
it's there that I want to pick the story back up. Over in chapter 17, verse number 10, this is what happens next or not long after. The Philistine, Goliath, said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So somebody come up and show me that you're not afraid uh, of me or you're willing to go to battle for your nation. Uh, But Saul and all of Israel heard these things, heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of the Ephraimite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three older sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul into battle. The names of his three sons who went into battle were Eliab, uh, Abinadab, and then Shammah. David was the youngest and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. The Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. And Jesse said to his son, David, take now your brothers uh, an ephah of dried grain and these loaves, uh, 10 loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. Carry these 10 cheeses of the captain of their thousand and see your brothers, see how they fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in a battle array, army against army. David left the supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. And whereas Saul and Israel were dismayed and greatly afraid, David heard them and David heard destiny calling his name. And it was here that David's role of stardom rose to a level that no one was prepared for, especially not him. As the giant scared the troops away, David volunteered to face him and driven by the applause and support of the nation, wanting to impress Saul, passionate about faith and about his God, David slew Goliath in his life. If it wasn't already changed, it was changed forever at this point because now he wasn't just a local hero. He wasn't just a hero in the palace. He was a national icon. It's important to note that while Saul was fond of David before this, his affinity for David was always somewhat out of spite for his son, Jonathan. If you know the story, Jonathan uh, was previously uh, exiled by his father from the palace and from the inner circle uh, because Saul was jealous of Jonathan because Jonathan before David, he was uh, the war hero. He was the one that people were applauding instead of Saul. So Jonathan had been removed and now David was brought in and becoming very close to Saul. And Saul was very, very insecure, had a tremendous ego. And, and, and yes, he was soothed by David's songs, but, David's, but Saul saw an opportunity in David to rub in Jonathan's face just how much he didn't need him. Now, I wanna say a word about this because if you read, behind, if you read the whole story, uh, Saul begins to give David more than he could ever want. He gives David his daughter's hand in marriage. He promises him the kingdom in the future. And David's just thinking, wow, this is God's will. I was a shepherd boy. Now I was a heart player. I was an armor bearer. Now I'm a giant killer. I'm gonna marry the princess. I'm gonna be the next king. God, thank you. This is awesome. I'm the star. People sing songs about me. I'm the most famous man in the world, most beloved man in the world. I have a gift that no one else has. I'm charismatic. I'm charming. Everybody loves me. 
Can you imagine how David must have felt when all this was happening? Meanwhile, Saul is buttering him up and saying, yes, David, you are the future king of Israel. You are the giant killer. You are the chosen one. You are my new son. But his intentions were not good. And I wanna say a word about this. The world often grooms us out of spite. You may not know this, but the world often grooms us out of spite. Even though we accept its treatment as good, it feels good at times. There's a word we need to hear. That always be aware of the motives of those you're taking influence from and you're taking guidance from because they may have different intentions than you may be registering that you may be taking in. And even though you may be like what they're doing for you, you may be liking where they're taking you. They may have intentions to do for you and to make you someone that you would not even like when it's over with. And even though it may seem like you're gaining, the cost will be much greater in the end. So David slays the giant. Saul sees an opportunity to once and all, once and for all, rid himself of Jonathan. He gives David his daughter in marriage, pretty much rolling the carpet out for David to be the next king. David could not see clearly. He's so blinded by all this. Look over at chapter 18, verse one through five, as officially David is brought in to replace Jonathan. Saul brings Jonathan back in just so he can make it official. I don't need you anymore. I've found a new son. 18 verse 1, now when they had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. So Jonathan knew what Saul was doing. Jonathan knew his father. He knew he was up to no good. And he felt for David because David was just taking it all in blindly. Jonathan loved David as with his own soul. So Saul took him from that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. So he says, hey, you're not going home anymore, buddy. You are mine. You're here to stay. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So Jonathan begins telling David, David, I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me because you don't realize this yet, but my dad is not to be trusted. And I know he's given you everything you could ever want right now, but you've got to see through this. Don't let this take away what's more important to you, what's most important to you. So here's what happens as Saul is making this official. Jonathan takes his robe off. That was his own. He gives it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So Jonathan gives David essentially the, the, the role of the prince of Israel. And David takes it and doesn't even, doesn't even register with David what Jonathan was trying to warn him about. David just sees a throne. He just sees more power. He just sees more fame. Why wouldn't you take it? It's right there to get. It's right there to grab. And God already promised it to you. So why not? So David went out wherever Saul went and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. He accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So again, silver platter served. David, not just the Renaissance boy anymore. He's the ruling man. He's a young man. He's the prince of Israel. But you can see that maybe all this started getting to David's head. As Jonathan humbly lays his power down, David seizes it. But can you blame him? He's a superstar. He's an icon. He's a giant killer. He's the prince and future king of Israel. But all the while, there was a growing void within David. He just didn't realize how great it was yet. Suddenly, he no longer had any connection to his father, Jesse. His relationship with Saul was about to take a very sour turn. He didn't see it coming. Jonathan did, but David didn't. 
As David realizes Saul would never be the replacement dad he was deep down in need of during all of this, as his fame grows more and more, Saul's ego begins to get more and more unstable and become more and more full of rage. Look at verse 6. So it happened as they were coming home when David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with a tambourine, with joy and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and saying that saying displeased him. He said they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul begins to Dwell on this and worry over this. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that the dressing spirit from God came upon Saul. And he prophesied in the house, inside the house. So David played music with his hand and at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. He had departed from Saul. Or verse 11, Saul cast a spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Therefore Saul removed him from the presence and made him, the, made him his captain over a thousand and he went out and came in before the people. David behaved wisely in all his ways. The Lord was with him. Therefore when Saul was, saw that he behaved wisely, he was even more afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. He was the hero. So for now, David was protected by his popularity. The favor of the nation was with him. David shuts his eyes to potential trouble, blinded by the quest for more fortune and more power. He and Saul's daughter are married. More battles are won. All the while, Saul is plotting something against David and eventually he decides he's gonna have to kill David. Saul has to be careful though. David has uh, more love than ever. He is beloved. He is the hero. But Saul is still the king. And if he only could turn the narrative against David, if only he could use his platform to change the people's mind about David. If only he could manipulate the press and the stories about David. David would never see it coming, being so overtaken by all his success and stardom. So the next time a war breaks out, Saul sees this as the perfect opportunity to begin turning the tide. Flip over to chapter 19. Look at verse 8 and 10, 8 through 10. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came back upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David against the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. And from this point forward, David realizes that he cannot be close to Saul anymore. It gets to David's attention that Saul is going to kill him, plotting to kill him. And at this point, being at war, David leaves the battlefield. He abandons the troops. And no doubt many troops died because David was not there to fight with them. And soon after there was a major festival, Saul brings all the people together. They were gonna sacrifice to God at a new moon. Uh, David is supposed to be there, but he can't be there because if he's there, Saul would try to kill him again. So David doesn't go to the festival and Saul begins to use all of this to turn the public opinion against David. He abandoned the troops first. Now he won't even come to the banquets. What is David up to? He's not even home with his wife anymore, the princess. David must be not the man we thought he was. Just like that, 
Saul had successfully ruined David's reputation. The word on the street became negative. Saul declared David an enemy of the state, lied that David even tried to overthrow him and could not be trusted. And now David was a fugitive. He was on the run without any guidance. And all the things that he had been propped up by were no longer there. So all that's ripped away from him as quickly as he had been given it. And what's important to all of this is God was in control of it all. God is the one that's authoring all this and steering all this. What would happen next was actually a necessary next step for David to take so that he might realize that none of that which he had enjoyed for years was what he needed most. But for David to learn this lesson, he would have to face one of the darkest moments and most shameful moments of his life where he betrays everything that he ever stood for amidst the panic that he was about to lose what he thought was most valuable. If you look over at 1 Samuel 21, We'll end our time together around this story, which is a crucial tipping point of David's life. Maybe you've never read the story, but it should be on your radar. David realizes the boat is going to capsize. He's trying to mitigate disaster. He knows that word hasn't spread everywhere about his being uh, an enemy of the state. And he goes to a far away city called Nob, where the tabernacle was set up, where the priesthood was located. However, David didn't go there to find refuge. He went there hopefully to take advantage of his credentials and cash in on his clout before everybody found out that Saul had turned against him. But his actions in attempt to save himself actually end up compromising the people that he should have been doing the most for. Look at 1 Samuel 21. Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said, why are you alone and no one is with you? David, you're the prince. You're Saul's son-in-law. You're the, you're the hero. Why are you out here? And why do you look like you've been, you haven't showered in weeks? You, you look like you've been on the run. Like, what, what, is something wrong, David? Is, is war coming? And Ahimelech has no reason to not trust David. I mean, he's the guy. He's the giant killer. He's the future king. So David said to Ahimelech, and let me make it clear, he lies to Ahimelech. The king has ordered me on some business and said, do not let anyone know the thing about the business on which I send you or I've commanded you. For I have directed my young men to such and such place. David says, oh, Ahimelech, I can't tell you about this secret mission that Saul has sent me on, but I need you to work with me. You've seen this movie before, right? And why would they not trust David? He's the future king. He's the man after God's own heart. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? I mean, you're a village of priests. I mean, what do you think they have, David? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand and whatever can be found. So David is using that power that he has now as the prince or that he had as the prince. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is only the holy bread. If young men have kept the le- kept at least... Or, have at least kept themselves from women. So the, the priest is, the holy bread is only for the Levites or the priest, but I guess I can give it to you if you've, you know, uh, kept yourself pure. And then David, who doesn't even have an entourage with him, just continues to lie. Oh, truly women have been kept from us for three days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in common, effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So, so David just, again, just goes along with it. Oh yeah, I've got an army of guys out here. We're all pure, we're all clean, we're all righteous. Just give me what you got. I, I, I need, and he's really needing to live off of it for as long as he could. But he lies to Himelech. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread which was taken before the Lord. 
And, and, and if you know the Old Testament, the showbread was supposed to remind the people of God that God's presence was always with us. And here's David betraying what he knows, what he has believed all his life, that God is with me. I don't have to worry. God is with me. I can accept consequences as they come. But he jettisons all that. So the priest gave him the holy bread. Verse seven, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And get this. And David said to Himelech, is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have not, I've neither brought my sword or my weapon with me because the king's business required haste. Oh yeah, I'm on a mission for the king, but I didn't bring any weapons. You got any weapons? I know y'all are, you're a you know, nonviolent village of priests, but maybe you've got a weapon or two you can give me because I'm on an important mission from the king, remember? And, and this, this should have cut him, but it doesn't faze him. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. There it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. I mean, I guess if you need it, David, you can take it. There, there's no other weapon but that one. Oh, David, the sword that you, the giant who you killed with a slingshot because of your faith, we've got his sword. But why would you need that? Aren't you the man after God's own heart? Aren't you the man that didn't need nothing but a sling and a few stones? But David says, there is none like it. Give it to me. So now David is literally with the weapon of his enemy, betraying everything that he stood for. I mean, let's just break this down. He lies about being sent by Saul. He presumes the trust of the priesthood and in turn betrays their trust. And the items that should have reminded him to trust in God exposed how much his faith had shifted towards himself. He believed his own hype. He believed he was too big to fail, too blessed to fail. God wouldn't let anything bad happen to him. This was all going to work out. David scurries away and scrapes by for the next few months. But Doeg learns of David's situation and quickly rats out David to Saul. Saul brings an entire entourage to Nob and interrogates the priests and they're completely caught off guard, confused as to why Saul would be upset with David. Why would you, he was sent by you, right, Saul? Why would, you, why would there be a problem? David told them as much, right? Saul does not, it does not even explain himself and within minutes he besieges the city. And the text tells us that Nob, the city of priests, he put them to the sword. 85 priests, their wives and their children. He kills all of them. All because they trusted David. One little boy survives, the chief priest's son, Abathar. He runs and runs and he finally finds David. And he says, David, they killed my dad. They killed everyone. I'm the only one that's left. And David just looks at him and says, man, I hate that. I really do. And David goes away and we don't hear about him for a couple years. He's just wandering around in the hills of Judea. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine? All because he was looking out for himself. And the very God he claimed to serve, he completely forgot about. And he ends up getting a whole village of priests killed. 
This was the moment that David hit rock bottom. Powerless, homeless, overcome with guilt and unrighteousness, David goes from being full of fame and fortune to now with only shame and brokenness. All the while, this was a result of being unprepared and unable to manage the platform he had been given. Taken away from his family. None of that stuff he had, the fame, the fortune, the heroic status, the love from the nation, the, 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 the pride, the power. None of that could replace what he needed from God. None of that could replace what he had when he was just a shepherd boy on the hills of Judah singing to God. He lost touch with all that. The faith he once faced Goliath with was replaced with cowardness and a lust for power. He was no better than Saul, was he? It's not far-fetched to say that God allowed David to face all this, the rise, now the fall, so that he might learn a valuable lesson. God used this to show David what he needed the most, which is a relationship with him. You see, David began to ascend to such prominence and power uh, that he had it all, the praise, the girl, the crown, the void left from being taken from his family. He didn't feel that big, but as time went on, that void grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and he realized after it was too late what was most important. He had been a boy after God's own heart, but now he would become a man tested and tried, drifted from God. He realized now how important, how vital, how premium it was to be in fellowship with God. Not only was God his good shepherd, but he would learn during this phase of his life that God was a good and perfect father. You see, David's dad had died. Saul was not the dad he thought he was to him after all. But David wrote this line during this period of his life, that God is a father to the fatherless. He's a protector of widows. God is in his holy habitation. This is where we find what is most important to God. And this is where David found out just who God was to him and what God truly wanted to give him. David found out what we all can know about God, that God is a father who doesn't just love us when we stay, but even when we stray, he loves us and he always loves us. He's a father who doesn't just take pride in our best, but he pursues us at our worst because David was at his worst, yet this is when God pursued him in a way that would change his life forever. That God is a father who loves us more passionately and purely than humans are capable of. He welcomes us even when we feel unworthy. When we are unworthy, he welcomes us. That he is a father who values us even when we've done everything possible to invalidate our place as his child. He runs to us whether or not we run to him. That David was running as far as he could away from God. And it was in this time, it was in this moment when he had the most blood on his hands he had ever had. Guilty of murder, guilty of betraying the trust of the priest, guilty of letting everything go that he once valued the most. It was in this moment that God ran to David when he was running away from God. It's like the prodigal son story tells us. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. That is who our God is. And that's what David learns during this phase of his life. 
whether we come to ourselves or realize our error, God is always coming to us. Listen, while we are still a great ways off, even if we're trying to get there, we'll never make it on our own. He runs to us. And church, if this isn't the God you know, if religion has drained you of what is true about God, that if it, God wants to break your bitter heart, he wants to break through and show you what means the most, show you that you mean the most to him, that he loves you and that he wants you to be loved by him. If you feel like you've drifted too far, you've done too much wrong, you've not done near, good, near enough good or right, God our Father invites us to trust him to come to him, to find rest and refuge in him. If you've previously turned to the world, maybe you've you caught up in the hype being said about you or around you. You attach yourself to everything but a relationship with God. Before you ever found success, even if you never find success, even if you feel like a failure or you have failed, God, your father has loved you and will always love you. Before you found yourself in the world and before you lost your way, regardless if you find your way back, even if you lose your way again, no matter the titles you bear, good or bad, whether you feel destined for goodness or for disappointment, God wants you to know that your true destiny has always been to be his child and to know him as father. David went from being the unknown shepherd boy to Israel's music icon, giant killer, war hero, beloved prince, destined king. Before all that though, he was a child of God and it took losing all that for him to realize that the child, that child of God was the one and only destiny that mattered most. It was David the outcast, David the wanted man, David the broken man that found in God what God always wanted him to find, a relationship as a child finds in the hands of a loving father. As an outcast, David spent 13 years in the hill country of Judea. He made his home a cave called Adullam. And it was in that cave he wrote some of his most powerful psalms. He said in Psalm 9, verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold. You know what stronghold means? It means that God has a stronghold on those that take refuge in him. It was in that stronghold of Adullam that David realized how far of a hole, how strong of a hole God had on him. It was there he fell in love with God, that God was his father and that he could find in him what he could not find in the world. He wrote, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold. He wrote all this when he did not know if he was ever gonna get back to fame and fortune. He was a desperate, homeless vagabond bond for 13 years living out of a cave after all of that his former life of fame he didn't miss it he relished knowing that these hills were a stronghold where he found the heart of God but you all know the whole story that he was getting he was going to go back to the throne that God was actually forging David in the fire but meanwhile David enjoyed his time in the stronghold and the refuge of his heavenly father one night during those 13 years in the wilderness, David sat down in that cave and wrote, again, some of the most powerful words that have ever been written, revealing his heart's one desire, revealing his one destiny. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. God, I don't want the throne. I'm not after the power. I'm not after the fame. I'm after you. Your love is better than life itself. You can know this same reality. This is your destiny as it was David's. If you come into the arms of your heavenly father today and the good news, he's waiting for you. He's pursuing you. He's good whether you've been good or feel good. He is the perfect father. In his eyes, you are his precious child. Nothing will ever change that as your destiny. It took losing it all for David to realize this, but you have a choice. You can choose today, no matter what you've been through, whether you have anything to bring to God or not, you can choose today that you want this to be your one and only desire, that your destiny lies in the hands of your heavenly father. He invites you, he welcomes you, he loves you, he accepts you. He's waiting for you. You're his child and he wants you to come home. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder of the gospel. Thank you for the story of David. Lord, maybe we heard a side of David that we didn't know was there. We didn't realize that that was his story. But thank you, Lord, for showing us that David was just like us. He got distracted by the world. He got caught up in the world. He went in every direction but the right direction. He ran away from God, but you ran to him and you found him and you rescued him and he found in you what he could not find elsewhere. And he said, God, your love is better than life. God, would you give us that same reality today? Would you help us see that in you there is something that we cannot find in the world? As you invite us to know you as father, as you invite us to be your child and to have that place before you, Lord, would you show us that there's a place for us, that you accept us and love us, that you're running towards us. And may we cast everything else aside to find you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.